Thank you, Corinne. After last night, I thought of changing my passage to the book of Lamentations for many of you who are gold and green fans, but we don't talk about that on Sunday, so we'll turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16 this morning. If you're in first through sixth grade, you can slip out this morning. Our fourth through sixth graders will be joining them because they're working on a, um, a special for church altogether. And so fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, you can slide out as well. The rest of us are turning to Matthew chapter 16. It's good to have Bradley Pelletier with us this morning. Brad's up in the balcony. He has been uh, undergoing cancer treatments in the Chicago area and has been gone for many, many, many weeks and slipped in a little bit late and slipped out because of his immune system, as you could imagine. But the doctor gave him freedom to come home this weekend, and he wanted to come to church. And so we're so thankful to see Bradley's an answer prayer up there, sitting with his parents. And so we just continue to, to pray for Brad and his recovery, and so thankful to have him back joining with us this morning. Matthew chapter 16, we're in the middle of a little bit of a hiatus from the Gospel of John, looking at the topic of the local church. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, are seen by some to be the most debated passage passage in Scripture or in the Gospels in regards to the church. I believe if we just let the text clearly speak for us this morning, we'll see what God intends for us to see through the, math, through the pen of the Apostle Matthew in regards to the concept of the church. We've been looking at this idea of the local church and the offices within the local church, both pastor and deacon. And in having this discussion, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, build really for us what should be an unshakable foundation upon which the church is built as well as giving us an understanding of the mission of the church. As we look at this passage this morning, we're going to be looking specifically at the phrase and building to it, I will build my church, found in verse 18. Verses 19 and 20, we have language that is, uh, is given to the church, that the church holds both the keys to the kingdom And this whole binding and loosing discussion, which we will not get into this morning, you find that phrase also given to us in Matthew chapter 18, in which uh, Christ further kind of unveils for us what he means by this binding and loosing in the keys of the kingdom, which has been given to the local church, which I believe is the local church's responsibility through meaningful church membership to stamp the believer's passport. Therefore, those who are approved of the church on this earth is a reflection of those who are saved in heaven and those who are not saved, bound, and loosed in heaven. The church doesn't do it perfectly, nor is it the responsibility of the church to declare who is saved and unsaved, but only to act and to gather those as a part of our gathering who are bound in heaven and to loose from our gathering who are loosed in heaven. And that is a short snippet of what we go through in detail in our starting point class. And so if you are interested in that concept, take our starting point Sunday school class for church membership, and you'll learn more about that. We won't get there this morning, and I want to tell you that up front so that you know that we aren't skipping that on purpose, but simply focusing and building to the phrase, I will build my church, as Christ says. God is building his church on genuine believers confessing the truth about Jesus Christ. That's the thesis for our passage this morning. Let's read verses 13 through 20 once again, and then we'll ask for the Lord's blessing on the sermon. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonas. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. God, as we look into your word this morning, we are so thankful, as Corinne Cooper just played, that we are thankful for your faithfulness. As we have sung this morning, we are thankful for your redemption that you offer. And we come and we ask your blessing on the preaching of the word. As we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. We come in Matthew chapter 16 to the point of the climax, really the, the, the central point, I should say. The climax being seen in the, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But we could say the central point, the fulcrum of the book of Matthew where the, the book of Matthew now tips in understanding where Jesus, as one commentator I read this week said, takes his disciples to seminary and he explains who he is. He takes them, in order to do this, to a city called Caesarea Philippi. There was Caesarea and then there was Caesarea Philippi. This city was known for its emphasis on pagan worship as both the temple to Caesar was there for the worship of Caesar, and also the temple to many false gods, including Baal, were also in that city. And so the city kind of sits in the shadow of the temple to Caesar worship and many other pagan temples, including a temple to Baal, the the false god, Baal. It is also here in Caesarea Philippi that there is a cave through which a river flows out called, the cave is called the Gates of Hades, or the Gates of the Underworld, translated here in our Bibles, the Gates of Hell. If you are going with us to Israel in February, we will stand in Caesarea Philippi, and we will read this passage, and we will stand where Jesus stood with his disciples, and we will read the words, God God will build his church. If you're not signed up and you'd like to go, we have a few spots available. That is a plug for you, not because, you know, we're trying to sell tickets, but because you will read your Bible like you've never read it before when you stand in the Holy Land. And so if you have those dates available and you're interested in coming with us, you can contact the church office. But we will stand in Caesarea Philippi in February and see this place where Christ makes this unbelievable profession. In this place, surrounded by pagan worship and idolatry, in the shadow of a temple built to Caesar, Jesus explains to him, to to Peter and all of the disciples, this isn't about Peter, it's about all of the disciples standing there, and primarily about Jesus' announcement. He answers his own question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He asks for a public consensus. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? And I'll tell you that if you want to find the true identity of Jesus, crowdsourcing the answer of who Jesus is probably is not your best bet. And so, as we expect, the disciples start pooling all the answers. Perhaps Jesus is John the Baptist. Perhaps he's a powerful speaker and prophet. Maybe he's Elijah, he's come with the power of God on him to do amazing works and raise from the dead. Maybe he's Jeremiah or a prophet coming as the weeping prophet Jeremiah did, broken over the sins of Israel as Jesus would say, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you, but you would not. Broken over his people. Calling them to return to God. If you were to crowdsource the options for Jesus today, you would hear things like, Jesus is a good person. Or Jesus was a good prophet. Or Jesus came to show us how to live as a good teacher and a storyteller. And in contrast to all of these false or incomplete ideas, we have Peter's statement who stands up as a representative of the disciples as he does often and he gives the statement in verse 16 look it down at your scriptures with me you are the Christ the son of the living God in verse 16 
This statement stands in total contrast to the popular opinions of the identity of Jesus. For the other identities where Jesus is one of many, but Peter's identity says, no, no, Jesus is one of one. There is something unique about Jesus that is not true of any other person. It is not as though there were prophets and Jesus is one of the prophets, or there's Jeremiah and Jesus is a better Jeremiah, but Jesus is one of one, the Christ, the Son of the living God. What do these words mean? Well, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's a title for Messiah. He's the promised anointed one from the Old Testament. You are the one that we've been waiting for. You're the one that the entire Old Testament hinges around. And and Peter goes further to say, not only are you the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. You're equivalent. You You find total equality with God the Father, the God of the Old Testament. And so surrounded by idols and paganism, Jesus asks a question. And in order to understand this passage, you have to understand the question that he's asking. He's not asking, do people know that my name is Jesus? He's asking the question, what role do people think that I play in the overarching plan of Scripture? What role do I play in redemption? Who am I in regards to your relationship with God? He's not saying, hey, if people heard about Jesus of Nazareth, he's asking about how they identify him with their relationship with God. The question is not... Who is Jesus to you, but who is Jesus, period? Contrary to the winds of our current culture, there is absolute truth. There is a truth that you have to recognize, that you must bow to, and that is the truth that Jesus is Lord. Jesus gives no credence to the other options, for there are no other legitimate options to the identity of Jesus. Jesus is Lord. The question is, is he your Lord? He stands unopposed, equal with God. That is a fact. The question is, have you aligned your heart with that truth? The only truth. And so Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. No doubt standing in the midst of Caesarea Philippi with the 12 disciples, the question may have come to their mind, are we alone in this? We stand in pagan country. We stand in enemy, behind enemy lines, in the enemy's domain. And you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And friends, can I tell you this morning that the comfort and hope that we have is that God is in the business of turning idol worshipers into Jesus followers. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 1.9. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, God is in the business of changing that. If your hearts are in alignment with the idols of our culture, whether that be materialism or sexuality, whether that be the pursuit of the American dream as your driving motivation or whatever it is, friends, God can change your heart. And he changes idol worshipers into Jesus followers. If you're worshiping at the idol of the world, turn to Jesus, confessing the truth that Peter confessed to find forgiveness from your sins and lasting hope and life. Have you found the world wanting, friend? Are you here this morning at the end of your rope because you've tried everything and nothing satisfies your heart? Jesus is your answer. We say often here at community that you have a hole in your heart the size of God, and until God fills it, you will continue to have that hole. And so Peter here confesses this truth That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We're going to spend the remainder of the morning looking at Jesus' answer to Peter's statement. 
Because what happens is, as we're following the flow of the passage here, Jesus presents a question with all of these false gods all around him. Who do people think? In other words, kind of like, how do I fall in this hierarchy? You've got the temple to Caesar. You've got the temple to Baal. You've got all of these carvings. You've got all of these false gods around us. How do people say that I stack up in regards to that in, in your worldview? And then Peter gives the statement, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus gives this unbelievable kind of explanation on top of Peter's answer. And that's where we find our focus on the church this morning. So I'd like to give you two major headings as we walk through this passage. We're going to first see God's revelation of the truth And then secondly, we're going to see God's construction or God's building of his people. Okay? God's revelation of the truth and God's building of his people. So let's look at verse 17 first and let's see God's revelation of the truth. Verse 17, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. In order to understand this passage, we have to recognize that this entire section revolves around Peter's identification of Jesus. Everything that Jesus says as a, is, is kind of a response to Peter's confession of faith. He stands as a, represent, a representative of the apostles and as a pattern for every person who need to confess this truth about Christ. And when you find this truth, when you confess this truth, when a person comes to Christ in faith, you will find two characteristics that are true of every person. They aren't just true of Peter. They're true of every person who shares this same confession that Peter shares. Number one, those who are reve- have this truth revealed to them by God are blessed by God. Those who confess the truth are blessed by God. All those who have the truth revealed to them are objects objects of God's blessing. This is not a material or financial blessing. You become the object of Christ's blessing when you confess the truth, and that means that you become the object of his love, his favor, his mercy, his grace. Those who do not confess this truth about Christ are not objects of his love and favor and mercy and grace, but rather are objects of his wrath. And that's why this profession, this confession of truth about who Jesus is, changes your identity from a child of wrath to a child of God. You see, friend, God sits in heaven either as your father or as your judge. There is no in-between. Either you are an unbeliever or you are a believer. Either you are unsaved or you are saved. Either you are lost or you are found. Either you are blind or you can see. Those who confess the truth are blessed by God, eternally blessed by God. Secondly, those who confess the truth, I couldn't think of a better word. Maybe you can think of one and share it with me afterwards. I came up with the word unveiled. Their eyes have been opened. Look at verse 17. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. It's interesting that Jesus, there, there are so many things about this passage that are fascinating. One is the, uh, the interesting comparison that Jesus makes between the physical lineage of Peter and the new spiritual lineage of Peter. He says, you're Simon, son of Jonas, but flesh and blood hasn't revealed this truth to you. It's like, Peter, it doesn't matter what family you come from. It doesn't matter how devout your family or your parents were. It doesn't matter if your grandfather's a priest in Jerusalem. None of that matters because flesh and blood has no bearing on your spiritual standing before God. You can come from the most Christian family in the world and end up spending eternity in hell and you can come from the most broken pagan worshiping family and be a regenerate child of God because flesh and blood the lineage that Peter has has no bearing on this revelation flesh and blood are also contrasted with the physical salvation and spiritual salvation that God who is a spirit who is eternal has revealed eternal truth to Peter. There is nothing about Peter or about his lineage 
that had any bearing on the comprehensive understanding of this eternal truth. It had nothing to do with his own brilliance. It had nothing to do with his own training or deductive reasoning. There's a reason why Jesus chose fishermen to be his disciples. For the gospel can be understood by any person when God opens their eyes. You're never too dumb to come to Christ. The gospel is not for the academic elite or for the smart of this world, the smart people of this world, or for those who who have a, a grasp of deeper meaning. It's for all whose eyes have been opened by God. No one argued Peter to this point or convinced him of this truth. Peter's confession was not solely based on his own experiences or the miracles that he witnessed. How was this truth revealed to him? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Look down at verse 17. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The only way that Peter could come to the understanding of this true confession would be for God to reveal this to him. He can't just, no, no one can just sit down and through their deductive reasoning come up on their own with the plan of salvation. If you'd like to see a fascinating pattern and an and example of someone who has gone to the, to the far lengths and end of natural revelation and human reasoning and almost gotten to the gospel would be uh, a name Jordan Peterson. Some of you know him, some of you don't. But if you, if you watch Jordan Peterson's progression to ca- how he came to the knowledge that God exists and that the Bible is true, it's come all through natural reasoning and, and argumentation and, re- and, and his own mind's processes. But coming to the realization that the Bible is truth and that God exists is not enough. You have to come to the point of saying that Jesus is the Son of the living God, that He's the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, and the only hope for salvation. And so there are questions spinning in Christian circles. Is Jordan Peterson saved? And the answer is, I don't know. But if he's fully relying on his own consciousness his own thoughts his own mind to get there the answer is no because the pattern of God is that it has to be revealed through scripture let me give you these two cross references Luke chapter 10 verses 21 and 22 in that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said this is Jesus I thank you father lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children yes father For such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It's only through the supernatural revelation of God that a person comes to know the truth. Listen to Paul's conversion testimony in Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age, according to my people, and extremely jealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. Listen to his testimony. But when he who had set me apart, apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That in order for a person to be saved, God has to open their eyes. You can't argue someone into the faith. You can't convince someone to become a Christian. That only comes through God's revelation, which is the Word of God, and God's Spirit opening their eyes. There is no brilliance or human reasoning that can bring you to the point of salvation. It's not to say that your own understanding and reasoning has nothing to do with it, for the Bible can stand up to any question you have or any thought process that you think disproves it. It can stand up and defend itself. It it carries its own weight. But your own thought processes and reasonings will never bring you to the point of salvation. Some of you think, if I can just have this question answered, if I can just have this question answered, Friends, there will always be more questions. There comes a point where you have to come to Christ 
in faith, and that happens when God opens your eyes and reveals himself to you. Doesn't this truth bring comfort and joy and hope as it shapes our witnessing? Your responsibility in your witnessing is not to convince or argue someone to the truth. If you think that, you'll never witness. Because you'll go to share your faith and you'll say, man, am I saying all the right words? Can I be convincing enough? Rather, your, your responsibility is to present the true gospel and then pray that God will open their eyes and save their soul. A faith-filled confession of Jesus can only come through God opening the eyes of the blind. And God could use your testimony in order to do that. So in Jesus' statement to Peter, he gives a direct connection between the, the revealing of God and the faith of Peter. And he uses this confession of the identity and work of Christ as the foundation of the building of the church because the identity of Christ and his work are inseparably linked as we saw in our song service this morning. So let's look secondly of God's construction of his people. We'll spend the the rest of the morning here in verse 18. The confession of the truth is found in Peter's statement. Jesus tells us that those who confess this truth are blessed and have had their eyes opened by God. And then verse 18, Jesus continues. And I tell you, you are Peter... And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now before we go into the details on verse 18, I want to show you something that you can't see in the English, but is very, very important in this verse. There is a word play here between the name Peter and the word rock. Peter's name is Simon. Jesus here gives him a title. You could say he renames Peter. We know him as Peter. His given name is Simon. Verse 18, I tell you, you are Petros, and on this Petra rock, I will build my church. There's an inseparable wordplay here. And there are some who've tried to downplay Peter's role in verse 18, but you cannot get past the fact that there is a a connection between Peter and the rock of the church that Jesus is building. And so there's wordplay here, and there's an undeniable connection between Peter and the building of the church. We cannot do gymnastics with this and try to act like there's no connection here. Okay, Some have tried to do that. We're going to take that idea, and we're going to throw it out the window as, as not valid because we need to take Scripture at what it clearly says. But before we get to the details of that, I want to ask the question, what is the church? Okay, because in order to understand Peter and his relation to the building of the church, we have to understand what the church is first. Okay? In our culture, we often refer to buildings as churches. In fact, uh, you may find yourself driving down Miami with somebody who is perhaps new to South Bend or maybe a friend of yours, and you say, see that right there, that's my, and you will use the word church. The word church in Scripture does not refer to a building, and it has never referred to a building in all of Scripture. It's the word ecclesia, which means gathering of people. Now, buildings are important. They're very important. They're useful as they provide an identity in our area of town. My dad, at at one point, we would meet for some of our church gatherings as he replanted our church when I was a kid. We would meet in our living room. And when you tell somebody, hey, would you like to go to church with me? Yeah, where does it meet? It meets in my house. Normally in our culture, they're going to think, okay, is this a cult? Or, Or, well, you know... What's, what's happening here? What do, you mean, what do you mean it means it meets in your house? You're right? or, or we actually share a meeting with, at one point when I was growing up, we shared meeting in the Museum of, of York County, which was there in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And so we tell people we meet in the gathering room of the museum. And we're, we're a church in our culture. That's a barrier to some people. And so 
not having a building, an established presence in a community can be a barrier some people have to get past as you're planting a church. So buildings are, are, can be very useful and are very important. They can also be used to give an accurate representation of our God. If our, if our building is messy and out of order and not excellent, then it can give a presentation that we don't really care about the space in which we gather for worship. The Catholics take this to, a, to an extent that is, is what I believe beyond maybe what Scripture would prescribe, although I don't think it's unbiblical, and they would shape their cathedrals in the shape of a cross. And, and their cathedrals are meant to draw your eyes to the heavens. And they're beautiful and they're gorgeous. There's nothing wrong with that. I've often thought how wonderful it would be to reclaim an old piece of architecture for gospel advance. It would be amazing. There's nothing wrong. And in fact, there's a lot to be said for beauty. God's people are not the people of the eye. That will be in heaven. We're the people of the ear as we listen to God's word here on this earth. Buildings can be helpful to represent God. They can also provide a gathering place that's free from distractions. That we don't have to deal with the sun beating down on you or the cold during the winter. And, and surely during January and February, we're so thankful, sometimes during November and April as well, that we have a roof to keep the snow off our heads here in South Bend, Indiana, right? That buildings can be helpful as they remove distractions. They can also communicate the mission and focus of our gathering. When you come into this room, it is very clear that all of the seats are pointed at the scriptures. That the pulpit is in the center of the platform. And friends, that is important. And was a a reclaiming of expository preaching in the Reformation in the 1500s. That the, the, the table that was meant for the elements is no longer the central part of our gathering if it's meant as our Roman friends would mean it in the Roman Catholic Church, but is set below the scriptures. And so everything about this building speaks to you in some way, not in a spiritual way like you're hearing voices, because that'd be weird, but in, in, in a sense that it sets a pattern. And that's why, that's why, friends, we're, we're going to be investing money into our, our, our renovation of our lobby because I think we can do a better job of being welcoming to our visitors. We can do a better job of providing space to fellowship and discipling space. And so our Thanksgiving and Christmas offerings are going towards that. And we're taking this very seriously as we plan this out in order to accomplish ministry. And we're going to ask that our church family comes together to do that as we all together sacrificially give in order to make our building more conducive to ministry. Not so we can make a statement of being on the cutting edge, but so that we can effectively accomplish gospel ministry in a better way through our buildings. Buildings are important, but buildings are not the church. If this building for some reason burned down and we had to meet in aisle seven of Martin's next week for our worship service, friends, we would still be the church. And we could still have, in every way, a gathering pleasing and glorifying to God. So what is the church? J.C. Ryle, a wonderful preacher from the past, said the following, The church which Jesus promises to build upon a rock is the blessed company of faithful people. I love that. The blessed company of of faithful people. Friends, the church is God's gathered people. People to whom God has said, like he did to Peter, you are blessed because you have come with a faith-filled confession that the church is people. But it's not you, it's us. I think people get this confused and make church too individual in our individualistic mindset That they will say, I am the church. No, friend, you're not the church. We are the church as we gather together. And there's a distinction between what we would call the universal church where it's every genuine believer in every place since Pentecost of all time that God is gathering a group of people together and he's building that group that will one day gather before his throne and sing. And then there's the visible representation of that universal church called the local church, the whole in every unique place. And so God is building that ch- our church. God is building his church. 
I'd like to make three observations in verse 18 as we see God constructing his people. Three observations. The first observation is that the church is built on true confessors and true confessions. This goes back to our interpretation of verse 18, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Now there are really two good options here and I'll give them both to you and I'll give you my opinion. The two good options is that the rock that the church is being built on is either the confession that Peter is making, okay, which, which is an option. I don't think it's the best option, but it is an option. Very popular option. That what Peter says, that's the rock. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Simon, you're blessed because you got it right. And on this rock, I'll build my church. I think that is a good option, but I don't think it's the best option. I think the best option here is to see the rock as being, listen carefully, Peter and his confession as a representative of the disciples and every other person who will make that same confession because the church is not some sort of immaterial confessions. The church is people. And so Jesus, in his wordplay, Peter is the rock and his confession is the rock because you cannot separate the two. It's not as though you can separate his confession from who he is because it's a confession made by faith. And so you have Peter and his confession as one. True confessors making true confessions. That is the rock on which God is building his church. There are some who would do, um, you know, we call them exegetical gymnastics, which just means they have all these hula hoops they're trying to jump through in the text to try to get away from the fact that Jesus is talking to Peter as the rock. Why? Because the Roman Catholic Church would believe that Peter was the first pope and that as the pope, he was one of the cornerstones. And so they would interpret this passage as saying that Peter is the rock on which the church would be built. And then you have the line of succession from Peter as a pope. They try to back this up with church history, but I'll tell you that the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church did not adopt this until 550 A.D., And John Chrysostom, a church father who wrote in the 300s, wrote the following, Upon this rock I will build my church. In his message in the mid-300s, John Chrysostom said, that is, on the faith of his confession. The historical church position is that it is the faith of Peter, thus we say Peter, and his confession. I believe that Chrysostom is right. In, immediate, in an immediate sense, God is going to use Peter as a rock in the church of Jerusalem to even give his life. But in a long-term sense, in an extended sense, Peter is a representative, so all those who come just like Peter did will be built, will, the church will be built, let me rephrase that, the church will be built on those who come just like Peter came. In fact, why don't we just let Peter define this concept for us in 1 Peter chapter 2. Listen carefully. As you come to him, a living Petra, a living stone, Jesus, rejected by men but in sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Peter himself recognized that even the believers who were called out of idolatry and were the foundational building of the first century church, they themselves were stones that God was using to build the church. Built on Christ, the cornerstone. And so what is the rock, friends? Some do exegetical gymnastics and try to say it's it's Jesus. You are, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. I, I think that's, I hate to use the word ridiculous because that, that there's just, there's no evidence in the text or in the sentence structure or in the language for that at all. We can confidently say that God is building his church on true confessors making true confessions just like Peter. That God is building his church if you are a believer on you, friend. You are the church that he's building. People 
Now, the implications of this are massive. All those who are faithful confessors of this true confession are little stones God's building to build his church. But the implications, I'll draw just one for you this morning, is that those who are gathering in a building calling themselves a church, who are not founded on a true confession, they are not true confessors making a true confession. They are not a church. This is important for you to understand, friend. Because if you have friends that are gathering in a church that does not identify with the Christ of Scripture, you cannot view them as a legitimate church, nor can you view them as brothers and sisters in Christ. I'll give you three illustrations. If you have friends that are Mormons who believe that Jesus was the spirit child of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, who believed that Jesus was the half-brother of Lucifer, and the reason that Jesus was chosen as the Messiah, not Lucifer, was because Jesus came up with a better plan to accomplish the mission of redemption. If you have friends that are Latter-day Saints, they are not Christians, and they do not attend a church. They attend some sort of false gathering, but they are not a church. They are not part of God's church, because Christ is not building that church. If you have friends that are Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that Jesus was created by God the Father and that his life began in heaven and that he was created, that Jesus is a totally separate essence than God and not part of any sort of trinity, that is not a church. We have one right down here in Miami. That is not a church, friends. That is a gathering, and they may even gather on Sunday, but they're not a church. They are not true confessors making a true confession. And in the culture of today, those mainline denominations that would embrace the cultural debauchery of the sexual revolution are not a church. Let me give you an example of something that I thought was actually a Babylon Bee article that turned out to be true. It was not written by the Babylon Bee. It's the woke church creed. When I first read it, I laughed and I was looking for some sort of satire, but it was real. Listen carefully. I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child who wore a fabulous tunic and had two dads and saw everyone as a sibling to God. I believe in the rainbow spirit who shatters our image of one white light and refracts it into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. I believe in the church of everyday saints as numerous, creative, and resilient as patches on the AIDS quilt, whose feet are grounded in mud and whose eyes gaze at the stars in wonder. I believe in the call to each of us that love is love is love, so beloved, let us love. What that means, I have no idea. I believe, glorious God, Help my unbelief. And there are gatherings of people in this city who would quote that every Sunday. And friend, can I tell you that we need to do a better job at community of quoting the wonderful creeds of the past, not because they're scripture, but because you need to know the truth. The Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and we could go on and on and on. It sounds like something from the Babylon Bee, but it's not. It's real. And they're calling themselves Christians and they say they worship God, but they're not a church. So don't pretend like they are. They're not brothers and sisters in Christ. Does that mean we hate them? No, we love them. But we hate their falsehood. For it's drawing people into hell every day. And so we stand for the truth and we realize that in order to be a church, it has to be a gathering built on true confessors of the true confession of Christ. The church is built on genuine believers. All other gatherings are not churches. First observation. Second observation. The church is centered on Christ. He says, I will build my church. I've given you some thoughts here. Christ is our founder. 
Though other assemblies have existed before and exist now, there is only one true assembly of God, founded by Christ, that will exist for all of eternity. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Secondly, he is our assurance. He says, I will build my church. This is an assured promise. We can be confident that God's church will be built. Every time we pray for God to build his church, we have a guaranteed answer to prayer. Think about that. We pray here at Community, God, will you build your church knowing it's an answered prayer? And then we say, would you build it here at Community? Because God has not promised to build this local congregation on its own, friend. It's not guaranteed. And so we must be faithful, faithful. When we give to gospel endeavors, it's an assured spiritual investment that God will build his church Those investments that you make with your time, with your resources, with your money, with your talents towards gospel endeavors are spiritual investments that have a guaranteed dividend. He's not only the founder and the assurance, he's also the architect. He's the planner and desire. I will build my church. It's Christ who designs and orders the church. We're not free to order the church or to run the church as we desire, but we are only free to align under his plan. And that's where this message fits in the the overarching um, message of this series is to say since it's Christ's church, we must submit to that as him as the architect and also him, Christ as the architect and Christ as the owner. God is building a people who belong to him, who are purchased by him, and who are owned by him. Listen carefully, friend. When you say the phrase, my church, may that never be a statement of ownership, but may that only be a statement of stewardship. When when you're not sure about what's happening in the church, your question should not be, do I like it, but is it biblical? When unsure about who should join the church. The question should not be, do we like that person or do they have enough money to help us? It should be, are they a true confessor having a true confession of who Jesus is? For this church is not owned by you and it is not owned by me. It is owned by Christ. And we are here to steward the church for him. Christ as founder as the assurance of the church, as the architect of the church, as the owner of the church, as the producer of the church, that my job is not to build the church, but to be an instrument through which God can build his church. You are not responsible for building the church, friend. You are responsible for being used by God so he can build the church. That we are required to be faithful. Let God be God. God will produce this. This is all a prophecy of what Jesus will do. The church is not a reflection and a continuance of what God produced in the Old Testament, in the temple and in the tabernacle, but is a reflection of that. Let me explain what I mean by that. God is producing his people. In the Old Testament, you have the tabernacle and the temple on, uh, in which the presence of God dwells. And many people see the church building as a continuation of the tabernacle in the, in, the, in the temple of the Old Testament. And you may not think you are like that, but what it comes up in our mind is when we say things like, you know, don't curse in this building, this is where God's presence is. Or we use phrases like the altar. When we need to recognize that the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament were simply shadows pointing towards the gathering of people that God was going to build in the future. That God is building now. That the presence of God is in your life and dwells in the midst of our gathering. He is producing a people. Third reflection or thought, however you'd like to, meditation. What word did I use back here? Observation. Third observation. The church, first of all, 
is built on true confessors and true confessions. It is centered on Christ. Third observation from verse 18. It is secured by the power of God. It is secured by the power of God. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This phrase can easily be understood to reference to the gates of death that are there in Caesarea Philippi. It makes common sense that Jesus is standing there and you can see what they would refer to as the gates of the underworld. And you can almost imagine, I know this goes a little bit beyond, I don't like reading in between the lines of Scripture, but Jesus gesturing to the gates of the underworld there in Caesarea Philippi where we will stand in February. And we'll say, the gates of hell will not prevail against these people that I'm building. What does this phrase tell us about the security of the church? Literally, what Jesus is saying is the, the, the doorway, the doorways of, the, of death cannot stay closed on you. Is literally what he's saying. The doorways, the gates of of hell, the doorway that leads to death cannot hold you down. So what are some things that we understand about this phrase? Well, it helps us recognize that as God builds his church, we are involved in a supernatural battle. That we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The forces that are trying to drag the church into death will not succeed. Those forces that would seek to destroy the church today would be seen on the battlefront of claiming that simply speaking the truth of Scripture in love should be considered hate speech and thus worthy of jail time and hopefully through their threats and intimidation keeping people from speaking the truth. Or by trying to pass laws that would prohibit counseling and discipling young people in accordance with historical Christian doctrine. Or perhaps the battlefront of attempting to cancel the gathering and making it illegal to sing or worship together under the preaching of the Word of God under the guise of caring for the public health. And then saying under that same banner that we need under the protection of public health to murder helpless babies and mutilate the bodies of the confused and vulnerable children in our culture. That's saying under the same banner of health care, we have to cancel the church and perform murder and mutilation. Those are the, those are the battlegrounds of today, friend. That is where we are. And when Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail, he says they will not win. Not because we're so awesome, because we're not. If it was left up to us, we'd fail in a minute. But we're driven by the glory of God and the indwelling Holy Spirit, and that God wins. Though the world will seek to burn the church, God will preserve his people in the midst of these supernatural attacks and suffering as he preserved the bush as it burned in Exodus chapter 3. That though the church seems to be on fire, yet it is preserved through the glory of God, showing and displaying the power of God. If you side with the church, you may find yourself on the wrong side of a culture battle, but you will find yourself on the right side of eternity. The reason why the gates of hell will not and cannot prevail against the people of God is because that battle has already been won. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, death is swallowed in victory. Oh, grave, the the doors that are trying to slam shut on God's people, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, because of this, because the gates of hell will not prevail, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 58. And then the picture is given to us in Revelation chapter 1 that the gates of death, the key to those gates are held only by Christ. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and hell. That door can never be locked and shut when Jesus has the key. We are involved in a supernatural battle that has been won by Christ, and the victory is promised by God. Friend, even though the unsaved workers of darkness flogged Jesus and nailed his hands and feet to the cross, even though Jesus died on that Roman cross and was laid in the tomb for three days, there was nothing that they could do to keep him in the grave. For only he holds the key to the gates of death. And so as the forces of darkness work to suppress the church and may even appear to succeed in these moments of affliction. The success of the church is guaranteed by God himself and secured by the power of the resurrection. All of our hope rests on the power of the resurrection seen in Jesus Christ. He has proven victory over death and victory over all the forces of darkness. And just as Jesus was not abandoned to the grave and left there, so we are not abandoned on this earth. Acts chapter 2, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor would his flesh see corruption. We do well to be concerned for God's church in the future. How many times, friend, have you thought, will the church be around for my children or for my grandchildren? Will Community Baptist Church still be here when I am a grandparent? And so I can sit and I can worship with my children and their children. And if the Lord tarries, even their children. You do well to be concerned for Community Baptist Church. But only in that our concern is that we accurately reflect the truth of the gospel and that we are committed to doctrinal clarity and holiness. Other than that, leave it to Christ. For he will build his church. All other concerns should be secondary and maybe even cast by the wayside. Nothing can keep God's people in the ground. Nothing can kill God's church. Let us call out today that God would build his church here in South Bend, and that this local congregation would be a part of that. And may we, with fervent prayer, look forward to that day on the last day, when this prophecy is no longer prophecy. When Jesus will not be saying, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But on that day when we stand before Christ, worshiping the Lamb as though slain, and when we can proclaim and Jesus will proclaim, I have built my church and the gates of hell did not prevail. My friend, what a day that will be. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the clarity of Scripture. And we're thankful for the truth that brings us hope. We're thankful for the understanding that you will build your church. And that we should be concerned as to our responsibility and may our responsibility be a dedication 
to the understanding of Scripture, thus being matured and equipped. A commitment to the teaching of sound doctrine. And may we be committed to holy lives free from sin. And may we ask you to use us to build your church. We are confident in your promises. We claim them for today. And we ask that we may see them here at community.